Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we'd love to potentially have you on the program alongside us Um, i'm very pleased to say that joining me on today's show on what is another warm sunny summer morning here in the capital is tony street tony is the managing director and global head of clinical services at pilatus comparator solutions a business launched to provide smarter sourcing solutions to the complex and demanding field of comparator sourcing for clinical trials tony very warm welcome to yourself and thank you for joining us today thank you scott uh, good to meet you and thanks for taking the time to uh, have a conversation Likewise, Tony, thank you for joining us on the show, and it certainly is a uh, lovely day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the context in which we're having this discussion, and that's the fact that we're recording this podcast in early August 2021. So um, COVID-19 related social restrictions are gone in England for the time being, as we well know, but we're still sort of feeling the effects of the pandemic economically and socially. And that's now been the case for the best part of the last 16 months ever since it made a real impact on our day to day lives. So sort of looking back over the pandemic by and large, how has it affected yourself and your business, would you say? Sure. I mean, it's been a, a very, very interesting time, I think it's fair to say in many ways. Um, for the Pilatus organization, it's actually been, um, I, I guess you could almost describe it as, as a perfect storm in terms of the uh, timing of the pandemic, um, in that the Pilatus organization was acquired as a business by a parent company in Denmark called Orifarm. And um, naturally, you know, go through an acquisition and the changes that that entails in, it, in itself is, you know, potentially destabilizing for a business. Um, and we have had a change of leadership during that period with myself coming into the business. Um, obviously, we've also had the added complexity. A big part of what we do is supply chain. So we've had the added complexity of Brexit also taking place during this period. Um, and, and myself, um, very simply coming in as a, as a managing director for this business, I've never met face-to-face with anybody from the parent company. Um, we had interviews online. Um, we had you know, subsequent board meetings, etc. Everything has to be um, online, which is a you know, pretty unique um, challenge for us. Equally, um, we're a global business. Um, I have a, an organization that I'm responsible for in the US. Um, and again, not being able to visit the facility or visit the people, meet with them, meet and greet as you ordinarily would coming in as a leader for a new business. So there's, there's been some pretty interesting challenges from that side of things. Um, to... Add to that, um, the clinical trial space, while well, clinical trials, obviously with COVID, is very, very relevant. Um, it's been a really interesting period for me to see the um, subject that is my area of expertise, so front and centre in the news, um, very much you know, focused on the clinical trials for the vaccine. The, um, the challenge for us as a business is that, um, as you said at the introduction, um, we are focused on the sourcing of comparative products. And comparators are... Uh, essentially, that would be the gold standard treatment that exists for a particular disease that is being um, researched with a, a, a new product. So it, it's the uh, the control arm of a clinical study, if you like. And obviously, with COVID, 
there are no comparators because there was no product previously in existence to treat this this particular disease. So that meant that a lot of the industry's resources were redirected and refocused on efforts to obviously find a vaccine and to find treatments that were um, able to combat the the, the growing pandemic for COVID. Um, So that has led to um, a, a global slowdown in the number of clinical trials that are running and also, patients um, have not been particularly willing, um, quite rightly so, in my opinion, to necessarily attend hospital clinic face-to-face appointments for clinical research programs um, while they have been uncertain um, about the, the risks that they may introduce themselves, particularly if they're vulnerable, um, by attending face-to-face clinics and then the potential of uh, picking up COVID. So we've seen a downturn in the number of patients entering clinical studies and a significant downturn in the number of studies. Um, And then to add to that, um, as we said, the the complexities around Brexit and the need for us to operate in a different way during this period has has really uh, been something of a perfect storm. Mm. What I am really pleased to say, though, to add to that, is that um, as a business, um, we've responded to that. We've remained active throughout the pandemic. Um, the office has not been closed because we carry out essential work providing medication and we need to ensure that patients' treatment continues throughout um, the pandemic, whether that's um, in a clinical study or, or through our, our sister company that we uh, supply to the NHS also. So there has been a very real need for us to keep going regardless. Um, obviously, the adjustments we have made as a lot of organizations have made, has been the, the transition to a hybrid model working from home with only essential team members in the office. Um, for a smaller organization like Pilates, that has been a new concept. It has very much been culturally an office-based organization and um, with the facility for moving the drug products um, on the same space as the office. So that was, was culturally something of a, of a shock and technology-wise we needed to move fairly quickly to respond to that. Um, for myself, I'd come in from a very large organization with 18,500 people roughly um, dotted all around the globe. So remote working was not a concept that was challenging for me. And I think it meant that I came into the organization at, at an appropriate time as we were trying to you know, really address how we deal with remote working and how we make this an, uh, a success and how we stabilize the workforce and support them during that process. And uh, I'm really pleased to say that, that that actually has been quite successful and mm. it's something that we do intend to continue is, is with allowing that flexibility um, for, to, to give people the, the lifestyles they need as much as anything else um, mm. and the balance between being in the office and being at home. So uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's been a forced transition to perhaps a more modern way of working. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems as if from your previous experience, um, it sort of really helped sort of bringing that kind of culture into the business because your leadership style was very much catered to the remote side of things, working with 18,500 people all across the world. And that sort of really helped make that transition an easy one. And I think you are very, very right in that the hybrid workplace is going to have a place in the status quo in the way that the UK and the world does business moving forward because the expectations that employees have from their employers is now changing, isn't it? Because of the last 16 months. And if businesses don't sort of offer that flexibility with working practices, it becomes more difficult to recruit talent to begin with, and then also retain the talent that you have if those expectations have changed and you're not adapting and living up to that. Yes, absolutely. And 
you know, also to recognize what, what we do is a global business. Um, you know, we source products from 37 different markets throughout Europe and distribute them around the world. Um, and our clients are running their clinical studies in, in multiple regions, multiple continents. Um, and what we need to do is make sure that we hire as we grow, and we are in the fortunate position that we are continuing to grow. And as we hire, what we want to hire is the best person, not the best person that happens to live within the commutable distance of the business. So that, that for us is, 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 is key moving forward, is that we hire the best talent in the industry, irrespective of their geography, and enable them to feel connected to the business. That's also really important. Um, that sense of isolation is real if, if working from home is not managed well. Um, but that flexibility to be part of the team, accepted as part of the team, and not frowned upon because you're working from home. Um, I've certainly in the past worked for organizations where working from home was the privilege of one or two people in the business. And there was certainly a sense of um, regular comments that would, would suggest that, you know, you, maybe you're watching daytime television rather than, uh, than mm -hmm. working. And the truth of it is, you know, I think most people are seeing through the pandemic now that actually productivity in general goes up. And for the majority of staff, when they, when they are working from home, they're given the freedom to do that because uh, obviously commute time and, and hassles, et cetera, and interruptions are often reduced um, depending on the childcare situations and such like. But um, generally speaking, mm. I would say that we've seen productivity increase where we've had members of staff working from home. Yeah, for sure. And Pilates certainly isn't alone in seeing that as well. It is something that has been apparent across a multitude of businesses. And um, as well as that, um, you mentioned as well that isolation from working from home is a very, very real thing as well. And this is where we have to be really careful, isn't it? Because working from home isn't always a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's why it seems that the hybrid sort of format is going to be the way forward to give the option to sort of have that social interaction in an office space with colleagues that we maybe missed a little bit from the pre-pandemic days. Um, but as well as that, um, where sort of working from home is sort of unavoidable in some cases, there needs to be mechanisms in place there for just keeping on top of mental health and well-being, doesn't there? We're talking a lot more about it now. We're a lot more self-aware of our own physical and mental health. We're a lot more frank in how we discuss these issues. And sometimes when you are sort of interacting over Zoom calls and interacting over other media such as that, it's a lot more difficult to pick up on certain social cues that someone's not quite in the right headspace compared to, say, seeing them in an office and sort of recognising straight away that something's not quite right. So for business leaders to keep an eye on that side of things, it's becoming increasingly important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the, uh, the regular things we introduced was virtual tea breaks um, because obviously that informality of you know meeting each other in the kitchen as you're making yourself a cup of coffee or, or whatever that may be or the breakout areas within the within the office setting, um, trying to replicate that um, online is, is not easy. But at least putting something in as, as a regular um, virtual tea break, giving people the chance to have informal catch-ups. Um, during those um, breakout sessions, we have uh, we put a blanket band. We, we shall not talk about business. That's really important. Um, it is intended to be a social interaction where people catch up on what they've been doing through the week or you know, catch up over the weekend or even introducing some kind of um, informal pop quiz type questions and just the opportunity for a bit of online team building. Um, and those have been, in my view, invaluable, um, particularly for me coming in new to the business, having not met um, a number of the team face-to-face, -to, -face, to have the opportunity to get to know a bit more about them during those online calls has, has been really useful. 
Um, and what, what I have found also is on a one-to-one basis when I've been meeting with people regularly online, um, surprisingly, I think almost a, a side effect is um, it's difficult to quantify and I, I, I'm not sure I can sense check why this is the case, but I've found that people, because they're in their home setting, um, a lot of the time people are more willing to, to engage in more uh, self-disclosure in their, in their conversations. They're slightly more, their guard is lowered. Um, you're sat essentially in their kitchen with them. Um, or, or wherever they may have their, their office location. And that guard, that barrier to between personal life and office is, is somehow removed, mm. which has allowed people, I think, to um, be more open and, and engaging in some of their, their dialogue. So it is, um, yes, we, we miss some of those social cues, but I also have found a, a really positive side to getting to know people um, and asking them about their lives. I would never have met you know, some of my colleagues' children ordinarily, but because they've interrupted calls, we've had the chance to say hi, mm. and I now they know their faces. They know who I work with, and it has removed some of those barriers that perhaps would not um, have been possible in, in a normal office setting. So for me, that's really positive. Um, mm. I feel like I've got to know people more quickly than perhaps even in uh, the traditional office setting. So ironically, even though we've actually been apart for so so long during COVID, do you think that sort of that, that human connection between us and our teams and that level of trust has really sort of enhanced, and we've actually almost become stronger together for the experience that we've had as a unit within business? Yes, very much so, uh, and and to an extent, the the, uh, the kind of siege mentality certainly in the the first pandemic, uh, or the first lockdown rather, um, you know that that opportunity to to uh, share experiences. Um, everybody is going through something very similar. Um, I think I think I saw a quote, I'm not sure who it came from originally, but uh, one of one of the online social medias was saying that a lot of people are saying, well, we're all in the same boat. Um, actually, no, we, we're not all in the same boat. Um, some of us are in very nice boats and some of us were in a small apartment um, um, with no garden, etc. So not in the same boat, but we were all experiencing the same storm. And I think that was something that, that brought people together with that um, understanding that there is this global issue. It's affecting all of us. And it allowed people to start to talk about the feelings and how it's affecting them when perhaps we wouldn't have had that um, level of disclosure prior to the pandemic. And I think that's going to be incredibly important for the future as well as banding together and having that level of trust and moving forward together. And I think we've seen signs of that over the course of the pandemic, businesses rallying together and innovating to keep vital services running. We've seen communities coming together in some incredibly inspiring shows as well. Um, But obviously, as we sort of move into this sort of period of uncertainty, let's say, because we still don't know whether in England, especially restrictions are going to come back. We don't know what the trajectory of the pandemic is going to be, new variants, et cetera. But ideally, sort of over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, um, what ideally is the vision for yourself and Pilatus, Tony, and where do you see yourselves being by maybe this time next year? Well, importantly, um, actually prior to us talking today, um, one of the things I've been looking at is assessing our need for office space over the coming years. And as part of the acquisition, it's one of the key drivers is to what are we doing with our office space and, and our facilities um, as we move forward. And we are taking the decision that we will still be investing in um, enhanced office space for our team. Um, so we will certainly be having a central location, a team space that, that provides that ability for us to get together as an organization. Um, that that face-to-face contact, um, despite everything that we've discussed so far in terms of the positives of getting to know each other online, et cetera, that is still incredibly valuable, particularly mm. as we grow and we 
are training new staff and bringing them into um, what is a very specialised area. It, it, it's not easy to recruit people that come with you know, full experience ready to go. We have to have a full training programme to, to really bring people up to speed. So doing that with, with the level of face-to-face is, is really important. So we are going to be investing in um, significant office space to ensure that we have the space where everybody can attend the office um, if needed. Um, but equally, we are certainly going to maintain the flexibility for um, job roles that it's appropriate to do so. Obviously, if you're in the, uh, the warehouse and we're shipping products, then we need we need those individuals to be very much um, in the in the facility. But for um, account managers, project managers, sales staff, etc., there will be the flexibility to have the hybrid model of working from home, and then uh, essentially the the ability to get together as a team as and when we need to. So mm-hmm. I think uh, it's more of the same, really, for us as we move forwards. Yeah, plenty to be getting on with at Pilatus then and certainly wish you all the luck in the world in executing that, Tony, for sure. And just before we do wrap up on uh, today's programme, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time, um, this is a question more sort of directed toward the sort of younger viewers that may be tuning into this that are budding entrepreneurs and maybe starting their own businesses because we know in times of economic hardship, lots of new business does tend to sprout up. Um, for a youngster who is, like I say, looking at starting a business of their own, as somebody who has sort of had many years in business and succeeded as a business leader yourself, Tony, what sort of words of advice would you give to a young person to really get them to look up, seize on the opportunities and embark on that road to success in business? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that there's a number of things. I, I, I think that the first thing I would say is plan, plan and then continue to do a bit more planning before you kick off. Um, but Overall, I would say put your energy into it and, and go for it, um, but also ensure you have a level of backup plan. You know, understand risk. I think that's in, if there's one thing as a leader that I have had to learn sometimes the hard way is what what are the risks of me taking decision X or Y and then basing my decision on that. Not being afraid of risk, but understanding the risk and planning for the risk. Um, that's not something I think that necessarily comes naturally when you first embark on business, what you see is opportunity. Um, and it's very easy to focus on the positives of the opportunity, which is absolutely right. And that's what gives you the energy. But at the same time, ensure that uh, risks are, are adequately in your mind assessed and that there is contingency plans to ensure that uh, you, know, you don't put yourself in a position that would uh, be damaging. Sound advice indeed, Tony. Um, thank you so much for joining us um, on the programme today. It's been a real pleasure having you with us. And I also think, just given sort of how sort of enthralling it has been, our discussion talking about leadership and talking about some of the plans you have at Pilatus for the next year, I'd love actually to welcome you back onto the show, maybe in the next eight or nine months, just to see how things are coming along and we can sort of catch up on where we are then. Fantastic. I'd be very happy to do that. It's been good speaking with you. Likewise, Tony. And until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on in the world as well, because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but I'm confident the better days are ahead of us. Indeed. You too. It was a pleasure welcoming Tony Street, MD and Global Head of Clinical Services at Pilatus onto the programme today. Um, Here on the Leaders' Council podcast, we like to bring forward a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. And therefore, our chairman, Lord Blunkett, the former Education Secretary, will be joining us next up on today's show. He will be joined by Matthew O'Neill, who will be asking him about his thoughts on the last 16 months with the COVID-19 situation, as well as his hopes for this period of economic recovery that we're hopefully entering now, now that we're restrictions are gradually and tentatively being lifted and that will be coming up on the program next.
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it what's the one king uh, key thing that secure needs to do to restore labor as an election winning party i think secure starmer's major challenge is to convince Skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism. He has the forensic uh, mindset and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.